Welcome to the From Little Things podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Kenizaro, and together on this show, we'll speak with Aussie small business owners, founders, and entrepreneurs to share their stories and learn from those who have been on the journey from little things and beyond, so we can make it easier for you to succeed in business and life. From Little Things is brought to you by Papiera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free at papera.com. Welcome to episode one of the From Little Things podcast. For those of you who may not know me yet, I'm Daniel Kinazari, your host, and I'm the founder and CEO of Papera, the all-in-one fintech solution that makes business easy. We'll get to know each other more as we progress on our journey together, but today I'm really excited to be hosting you for our first From Little Things podcast episode. I've spent my life immersed in businesses of all shapes and sizes, from small to large, And one thing that's become clear to me is that business is all about people. Their dreams, aspirations, challenges, successes, and stories of perseverance through adversity to innovate and contribute to making the world we live in a better place. There are 8 billion people on our planet today, but only around 400 million of them are small business owners, contributing to about 50% of our global economic productivity. Despite the significance of their contributions to our society, 40% of them are going to fail within five years. And we believe this is largely due to a lack of access to the right tools, knowledge, and education to succeed. So we've made it our purpose to make business easier. And I hope through sharing the stories of those who have been on a journey from little things and beyond, that we can contribute to making it easier for you to succeed in business and life. So on that note, I wish to welcome our first guest, Steve Glaveski. Steve, welcome to our show. Dan, it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, Steve. Well, today, I'm really excited to be interviewing you as our first guest. Um, I'd really love for you to share with the audience a little bit about yourself and the journey. And I just want to make note as well that when we first met, we were both employees at a big four accounting firm. And I'd love to just dive a bit deeper once you've given your intro as to what led you on that journey from employee to entrepreneur. Fantastic. Yeah. So like most of us, Dan, I think I spent most of my 20s following the conventional path, the one that was laid down before me and well-trodden by many generations before me as well. And that was essentially to go to uni, get my degrees, get a cushy corporate job and start climbing the ladder. And essentially I managed to do that. Um, You know, I worked for the likes of Macquarie Bank, KPMG, EY, we we, uh, met back in like 2011, I think it was, early early noughties essentially. Noughties? Early tweens rather. And while that journey got me to a place where, you know, you had all the so-called trappings of success, like the decent salary, the corporate junkets, the business class flights, all that sort of stuff. I think on the inside, it really left me feeling a bit miserably comfortable. Um, I didn't feel like I was really leveraging my strengths. I didn't really resonate with the purpose of the work that I was doing, which was really to help large listed companies comply with various regulations. Um, And so I found myself ultimately like living for the weekend, partying, doing all that sort of stuff. And, you know, you can do that for a while, but essentially if you're at least a little bit introspective, you start asking questions, you know, is there more to life than this? And for me, there was, and I think the answer for me was entrepreneurship um, and moving into a space where I felt a little bit more um, connection to my work. Uh, I didn't have to cede control to authority, which is something I guess I've always had issues with. Um, and I was working at the intersection of my strengths and my my 
purpose, I suppose, if you will. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of brought me to entrepreneurship back in 2013, and I've been doing it ever since and celebrated my 10-year anniversary as, a, as an entrepreneur last month. Congratulations. Um, so I'm familiar with your journey, but perhaps uh, just to set some context, we're located in Australia. You're based in Melbourne at the moment. Uh, 2013 in Australia, startup ecosystem or entrepreneurial journey, not something that people are encouraged to do traditionally, as you say. Um, do you want to maybe share a little bit with us about like the origins of your journey and so how some of the things that you maybe were exposed to growing up potentially shaped you to make those decisions later in life about starting your own business? Uh, because as you say, a lot of us do grow up with this journey of go to school, get an education. And it's not to say that education is bad necessarily. Like that's, I'm sure has helped you along the way as well. But what are some of the, when you reflect on your journey, what are some of the things that you think early on maybe were were signals that you were meant to be an entrepreneur? That's uh, a, it's a good question. And it's not one that I have a prepackaged answer for Dan, uh, unlike your first question, but um Essentially, if I think back to, you know, upbringing and going way back, you know, my, I'm a first generation Australian. My parents are both migrants from Macedonia or, you know, the former communist federation of Yugoslavia, as it was back in 1970, when they made the move. And, you know, I reflect on my dad's journey. He was one of seven um, siblings, and he was really the only one to actually take a punt and move to the other side of the world, leave his family behind, leave his parents behind and try and make something of himself, despite the fact that, you know, he had very little education and the only thing he had going for him was work ethic. And, you know, he and my mom spent 25, 30 years basically just working really hard in, in various manual jobs, um, educating themselves on how to take that money and put it to work and invest and help, you know, grow a nest egg and provide their kids with more opportunities. So but perhaps... You know, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree in the sense that um, he was willing to take risks um, with nothing but uncertainty on the other side. Like when you're growing up in a village in rural Yugoslavia in the early 70s and you hear about this place, Australia, which is literally, I don't know, 20,000 kilometers away. And you're like, yeah, it's go there and there's work and you'll have a good life. And they've got no idea. It's not like today where you can open your you can pick up your iPhone, you can Google stuff. They had no idea what Australia was or what was expecting them um, on the other side. So perhaps that influenced how I see the world. And I, and I think growing up in that type of environment where just that work ethic and being grateful for what you have um, is something that I think colored how I see the world. Like I've always had that work ethic, whether it was with, my studies, whether it was with, you know, playing guitar in bands growing up and learning how to master that instrument, not that I ever mastered it, but did okay. Um, and, you know, applying that same thinking to getting ahead in the corporate world and trying to get to some semblance of success as an entrepreneur, I think it goes a long way. And it comes back to that sort of argument, um, I guess, of nature versus nurture. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think a big part of it, for me at least, um, was nurture um to some it's hard to it's hard to delineate i won't i won't harp, belabor the point too much but you know nurture the upbringing but perhaps part of it's also genetic to some degree i don't know no fair, thanks for sharing and i think uh, just to type kind of dive into it a little bit deeper what i what i heard from that was uh there's a story of, of resilience uh, a story of hardship and 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 growing up around sort of um needing to work hard for 
for a successful outcome. So it's not yeah. given to you. It's not, uh, it's not something that's uh, implied, it's something you have to earn. Um, and I think that does shape good entrepreneurs around grit and resilience building. Um, but uh, I mean, it's good to reflect on that now that you've been in entrepreneurship for 10 years, but when you're at that point where you're sitting in the corporate world, as you said, and you didn't feel fulfilled and you wanted to make that change, um, what was that catalyst or that shift where you said, all right, I'm going to take that leap now? Because it is a, a scary journey. And a, a lot of our listeners today and, and in the future will be thinking about how do I start a business? And, and a lot of people have great ideas. Um, but where a lot of people fail is that they never actually get started. And, and so what I'd love to explore through our session today is how did you get started and how did you overcome that initial step? And then once we once we go into that, I'd love to uh, dive into that first idea that you had, which um, we'll, we'll touch on shortly. Absolutely. And um, I think a lot of people, to your point, Dan, think about starting something but never do. Um, for me, it was a combination of, I suppose, two things in retrospect. Uh, one was naivety, you know, jumping off that cliff and hoping that the parachute would pop open and I'd have a safe landing. Um, part of it's not knowing what you don't know about entrepreneurship. Like most people, I think, get into it, especially their first venture. They think it's the best idea in the world. How could this not work? Let's go off and spend a bunch of money building this thing. Let's not tell anyone about it because we don't want anyone to steal our amazing idea. And, you know, a year goes by, You've spent, I don't know, five figures on this business, countless hours. You launch it. You're expecting it to go to number one on Product Hunt or what have you. And of course, inevitably, it's crickets. And you learn <laughs> a very painful and valuable lesson that while you might think it's a good idea, the market um, might not. Um, so I think that naivety is a big thing. But the other thing which I think people can perhaps take out of this is taking calculated risks. So... When I decided to take the leap full-time, I was working at Macquarie Bank up in Sydney. Um, cushy job, very difficult um, institution to get into um, and pretty much a, a good track. If you stick around for you know 10 years, you'll be very comfortable in life. You may not love what you do for work. The, I can only speak for myself. I'm sure a lot of people love working at Macquarie, but you will be comfortable. Um, so you know, you're kind of making a decision. And at least in my case, I was making a decision um, with that backdrop, which makes it even harder, especially when we talk about the the backstory where, you know, my folks took that punt, came here, gave me and my sister a better opportunity in life. We worked hard, got to a certain point where it's like, okay, you're on track now, just stick around, do the bare minimum and you'll be okay. And then to be like, actually, this isn't for me. Um, so that takes a bit of courage and to kind of more or less go against your parents' wishes in some respect, which I think I did, even yeah. though they were as supportive as they could have been under the circumstances. Um, but in that environment, the calculated risk for me was at the time I was working on a my first startup. It was called Hot Desk. It was basically an Airbnb for office space. So you could so let's, let's talk a little bit about that because it was a little bit of an Airbnb for office space, but it was also a bit of a WeWork as well before WeWork was big. And uh, and at, at the time, it, it sort of felt, I remember when you took that leap and it, it felt really innovative, this whole concept that um, you could rent office space, uh, but only the space you needed and not the whole office. So perhaps yeah. you maybe do a more justice around that. But perhaps when you're sharing this with us, um, it'd be great to understand, you know, that leap, um, that rush to get the idea out, as you said, and the hope that 
many, many people would potentially book uh, office desks. And then maybe touch on uh, market timing a little bit as well and the context of the market we're in. Absolutely. Um, so in terms of taking that leap, I took a calculated risk in the sense that I built a really simple website. It was basically a two-sided marketplace. I spent maybe $3,000 on, I think it was freelancer.com at the time, getting some developer offshore to build a really, yeah, it wasn't the best UX in the world, but it it worked. Um, did that, managed to get a number of listings on the platform. It was about 50 to begin with. And really, if you've got spare office space, doesn't cost you to list on the platform. You get to put bums on seats and we simply took like a 10% cut. So it was an easy sell in terms of the supply side. So we had a website, we had about 50 listings. I then personally wrote a press release, which I shot off to about a hundred journalists on Twitter. Um, so I got their emails from the Twitter profiles, shot that off, not thinking much of it. And about two weeks went by and then a cadet journalist from the Australian uh, newspaper, one of the biggest uh, papers here in Australia, got back to me and said, hey, we love this idea. We'd love to run a story. And long story short, about a week later, they ran a full page spread in the property section of the Australian with a photo of me um, taken on my lunch break in the middle of Martin Place. Uh, and I think that the headline of the article was hot idea with room for growth. So play there on the hot desk, play on words on the hot desk name. Um, but essentially, on the back of that article, I had a handful of investors reach out to me, so angel investors, early stage, and I raised a very small sum. It was like peanuts compared to what people are raising today. It was like $150,000. But for me, as a first-time entrepreneur, about 29 years old at the time, that was a form of validation. Um, it was a form of, I suppose, encouragement, and it empowered me to at least take somewhat of a calculated risk. Um, it gave me a runway as well. Um, you know, I moved back home for uh, about a year after that, just to give myself the longer stretch of time with that cash. And essentially, that's how I went about making that transition. And the funny thing is, hot desk actually didn't work out. As I said, building the supply side easy, building the demand side much harder. Um, I think you'll find that most two-sided marketplaces that have been successful have raised tens of millions of dollars to kind of build that sort of network effect. So, you know, here I was with 150K, one contractor working for me, trying to build something on the back of that. And it, it didn't really work. Um, I think part of the challenge you alluded to WeWork earlier was with WeWork, they essentially held, you know, leases on these properties or in some cases actually owned the properties. And, you know, that's some of the, the back backroom deals that um, Adam Newman was doing where he would buy the properties in his own name and then lease them out to WeWork. So he's kind of winning on both sides. Um, but in our case, we didn't have that. It was literally just different companies that had some spare desks or, or meeting rooms. And the issue was also friction. So yeah. WeWork, I have a pass. I can go to any office in the world, scan in, boom, access the Wi-Fi, do whatever I want make myself at home. Whereas with this, you kind of had to call the actual host, organize a time to meet up. They can kind of induct you into the place. So there was a lot of friction involved for what oftentimes might've been someone paying a hundred bucks to use a space for a day. And the justification to keep doing that as a host was 
pretty pretty hard to to make. Um, so that was part of the challenge with that. But essentially, doing that for about two years, I think for me it was like a personal MBA. I got to learn a lot about you know marketing, sales, customer support, product development, design, UX. I didn't master any of these things clearly, but I just had a very steep learning curve across all these different areas and also learned what not to do, what I would do differently next time, um, which is perhaps the most important stuff you take out of your your, your failures as an yeah. entrepreneur. Um, and that kind of paved my way forward, if you will. Thanks for sharing that. And I once had a, um, a very successful entrepreneur tell me, I, can, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you what not to do. And that's where a lot of the value will be. So I think there's significant learnings in that. Um, Steve, if we could just take like a little bit step back. So... I mean, you touched on raising money um, back in 2013, $150,000. By any stretch, is a lot of money for the average business owner. I mean, a lot of there are 2.6 million businesses in Australia. Uh, in terms of number of startups by way of tech-funded businesses, it's only a couple of thousand in Australia. So mm. I think the majority of business owners that will likely listen to our discussion today, you know, even $150,000 would be a lot of money to help start a business. But if we can take one step back for the individual that might be sitting there and, and sort of thinking, you know, how do I get started? How did you find that problem that you wanted to solve? Like, what, why, why hot desk? Why in a time where you know, Airbnb was only still quite young, WeWork didn't really exist as a global model yet. Why did you think you talked about calculated risk? Like, why did you start there? Yeah, I think, I mean, at the time working at Macquarie and the actual idea came about while I was still at EY. Um, and as a consultant for EY, we would visit lots of corporate offices. Um, you know, obviously our client office, um, locations and whatnot and i would just observe that there was tons of vacant space wherever i'd go um whether that client was in you know mining or banking or where, wherever they were and that kind of prompted the idea in the first place it's like why is there so much vacant space obviously this is expensive surely there's a better way and at that time 2013 this was kind of when the whole freelancer movement started to take off in australia um up until about 2010 the whole concept of quitting your job to start a, a startup in australia at least was nowhere near as common as it is today and if we look at you know venture capital as a as a sort of asset class back in like 2013 i think there was only about 150 odd million dollars combined in the entire ecosystem whereas now there's almost i think 10 billion dollars so it's it's like it's grown 40x in that time and of course some of your listeners will be familiar i think most of them will be familiar with the likes of you know canva um obviously atlassian airwallx like numerous other companies that have gone on to billion dollar valuations in that time but that was really rare back in back in the day um and so that essentially was where the idea came from and i think that is oftentimes where the best ideas come from is something that you've personally observed. Um, in this case, though, there is a nuance I want to call out in the sense that personally observing a problem is one thing, but feeling the pain is another. And I wasn't a commercial office landlord or I wasn't um, a tenant who was paying for all this space but wasn't using it all. If that was the case and I was like, oh, man, i got to do something about these spare, des spare desks, then perhaps I would have been able to create a better solution or, or maybe I would have told myself that no this isn't even worth building because yeah while we're paying for these desks maybe I've got um, as a as a company maybe I'm, I want to grow and therefore this is for my team or maybe there are all these other factors that 
I wasn't taking into account as someone who wasn't either a commercial landlord or a commercial, um, you know, tenant essentially. Yeah, no, they're really important learnings. And I think what's really interesting is if we were to just stop the discussion here, people may walk away and say, well, interesting story, Steve, sound like you had a, you took a risk, you failed and, and that was it. But um, I guess in the context of your wider journey, that was really the start of then the next eight years that followed. And you've done some fantastic things since. I think just one thing I wanted to highlight or, or, or just sort of touch on a little bit is that entrepreneurship is not just for people that have had a successful corporate career or that have built up a reserve of money to get started. Uh, because what you went on to do next was actually helping people accelerate their early stage ventures. And you would have met lots of different people from different walks of life. You want to maybe touch on Collective Campus and the accelerator that you ran. And then kind of, if you can take us on a journey from what then got you into writing uh, and then writing for the likes of Harvard Business Review and then publishing your own books and to where then eventually where we are today. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a long conversation, but I'll try and be succinct and, and keep it short for your listeners um, benefit. Um, but essentially after hot desk didn't work out, you know, I'd learned a ton about this emerging world of topics like, you know, the lean startup philosophy and basically all these different ways that entrepreneurs and early stage startup founders in Silicon Valley in particular were using to build out new ideas in a way that was quick, um, in a way that mitigated risk, in a way that didn't cost a lot of money. Um, and having spent about eight years in the corporate world uh, up until that time, that couldn't have been any further from the truth as to how big corporates worked. And there was this big impetus at the time, there is today, but at the time, the whole disruptive innovation, corporate innovation, agile, like these buzzwords were starting to take off. And so in this case, I kind of was closer to to the pain or the opportunity in the sense that I knew corporates were wanting to do this stuff, but I also knew that they didn't know how. And so Collective Campus initially um, was founded as a corporate innovation uh, consultancy and uh, school, if you will, corporate innovation school, I think was the tagline. And so we'd run workshops on all these different sort of methodologies. We'd run hackathons for corporates and things of that sort. Um, and the, the accelerator aspect was something that came about organically um, where one of our clients who was a, a law firm, uh, we were running workshops for them on coding, I believe at the time, front-end coding. And they basically asked us, hey, should we be thinking about an accelerator program? Because they'd read something about one online that a foreign legal firm was doing. And we more or less thought about the question and figured that with the workshops that we run and with our network that we had cultivated of people in the startup ecosystem, we could put something together for them. Um, and so we ran an accelerator for Mills Oakley. This was around 2016. And subsequent to that, we ran another 14 accelerators um, for brands like Lufthansa, uh, Bank of New Zealand, Microsoft, Village Roadshow. And to date, we've put about 98 early stage startups uh, through our programs and collectively they're worth over a billion dollars today um, and have increased in value about 3x since participating in our program. So in retrospect, I think we did um, reasonably well in terms of running those accelerator programs. And I think you know, to speak speak freely, and this is something that I'm pretty public with today, helping startups and early stage small business owners succeed, for me at least, was a lot more rewarding than running the training sessions for big corporates. Um, because 
the big corporates typically they'll run the training session they'll tick a you know continuous professional education box and go back to their jobs and not really apply it or at least even if they want to apply it they're in a big bureaucratic environment where it's difficult to do so um, whereas the startup founders the small business owners that we work with you know they have a lot more skin in the game and so they'll take the learnings and really run with them and and so for me it's super exciting when i see you know founders we've worked with like uh say justin liang for example who founded inspace um, which is like a 3d modeling uh, platform for commercial real estate to sell off the plan yeah. uh, when they go off and raise you know 20 odd million dollars and uh, including investments from the likes of edward eduardo Saverin, who was a co- facebook's co-founder alongside mark zuckerberg like saying that sort of stuff is you know it's it's really inspiring but also just gives me that sense of purpose that perhaps i was lacking way back when at the start of this conversation we we're talking about my time uh you know in management consulting and banking so so to to recap a little bit so you've shared a story of um you've grown up in an environment where uh there was uh there was hardship uh, lessons of resilience um building your toolkit to deal with all the different challenges in life and pursuing a structured path that would give you i guess the knowledge and education to then unlock opportunity you've reached a point where um you've realized that actually that pursuit of that opportunity at expense at the expense of what your true passions are was no longer delivering you happiness or making you feel fulfilled you've taken a risk um not knowing what exactly the uh the outcome was going to be but you said well like this is going to be better than sitting unhappy so i'm going to give this a shot but actually where you've succeeded isn't necessarily the first step it's kind of your learnings from that first step and then being able to apply that and if I kind of reflect correctly, you've also applied the skills from your previous career and put them together and said, well, okay, I'm going to use my consulting skill set to them and my corporate relationships to build a business, which is almost going to fund the stuff that I'm really passionate about. And um, I mean, a lot of people may not know this about you unless they've looked you up already, but you actually authored a book uh, from employee to entrepreneurship, which is one of many books that you've um, that you've authored. Uh, can you touch on now, how did you transition then from, I guess, learning to then becoming the teacher? Um, and uh, and we're not talking about small-time publications here. You worked with the likes of Harvard Business Review, as I mentioned, and many others. Um, how did you make that transition? And it seemed, it sounds like to me that it's incremental. And I guess the reason why I want to touch on this is that the key message that, I, that we'd love for people to get out of this is that business is hard, but if you stick at it and you you learn from your experiences that anyone can actually run a business. Um, but clearly it's not that easy. So maybe if we can just sort of flesh out a little bit about how did you make that transition then to actually then sharing your knowledge with people and what's that led to for you? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. And just wanted to double click on something you said um, towards the end there where people might think, you know, they want to start a business or they they, they try and they they give up. I think the biggest reason why people fail in business is they give up prematurely. Like if you focus on a niche where there is a real problem, you're still going to struggle for the first six to 12 months, but you build your brand, you do your marketing, you do your sales, you speak to people, you continue to pound the pavement, you learn from the interactions you're having, you make some tweaks, you stick at that long enough and you will eventually obviously I can't guarantee, but more often than not, you will break through, providing your learning from your interactions and adapting. Um, far too often, people will try something, three months in, it's not working, let me try something else. 
And so there is a sense of relief that comes from quitting and moving towards something else. But it's like, um, you know, I, I like reading ancient Roman and ancient Greek philosophy and Seneca, um, and a Roman senator, basically said that people try to cure themselves by going from medicine to medicine, but that doesn't work. Like you need to stick with the medicine um, long enough for it to, 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 to cure you essentially. And it's similar in business. So that's just something that I wanted to, um, to call out. And essentially perhaps you can succinctly uh, summarize that by saying, you know, people uh, overestimate what they can do in say three months and underestimate what they can do in three years. Um, so perhaps taking a longer um, time horizon when anticipating, okay, how much time do I, am I going to commit to this um, before I make a go no go decision? Um, of course, throughout that two to three year journey, you'll have milestones that you want to be seeing like leading indicators that show you that you are on the right path. Um, but you know, that's, that's a different sort of, so we're not, uh, we're not saying here just, you know, at all costs, uh, you know, just keep going until you can't afford to feed yourself. We're, we're saying take calculated risk, uh, but almost with the ethos that, um, you're, you've made a commitment to be an entrepreneur, not necessarily a commitment to your idea. Uh, it's going to evolve and, and you need to stay on a journey. I, I think it's kind of like the, the key messaging coming through at least. Um, yeah. but then when you decided to get into writing and sharing this, um, and where did that come from? Because you didn't have a history of, of writing before, at least that I knew. Um, uh, yeah. And, Actually, and how's that then evolved a little bit to where you are today? Yeah. So I think when I think about writing, it's probably one of the things that's been constant throughout my life. Um, my earliest recollection of having a passion for writing was being nine years old back in like 1992, massive NBA fan at the time. Occasionally, my dad would buy me a copy of One on One, which is like this NBA magazine, but it was really rare. So when he did it, I just start making my own little basketball magazines, and they were they were like full on fifty pages. I don't know what I was writing in them, but they had like I'd draw pictures, then have a cover, they'd be pull out posters, all sorts of stuff. So that sort of creative um, inclination, I think, was always there from a very young age, and then throughout life. I recall my year 12 English teacher encouraging me to study journalism. He's like, you know, you're a good writer. You should do that. And I was you know, about to enroll into information systems, which is what I pursued in, in, in university. I started business information systems. So perhaps that English teacher was onto something. Um, and then years before I started writing for Collective Campus, I used to post uh, blogs to uh, publications like Startup Daily um, prior to that. Some some people that know me know that I'm a big, you know, heavy metal and rock music fan. I used to write for a, a, a publication called Faster Louder in my 20s. Um, so basically concert reviews and album reviews and things of that sort. And I didn't get paid, but I got paid in free concert tickets. And I got to interview a lot of rock stars and, and things of, the, of that sort, which was a lot of fun for me as a 20-something at the time. So I think I've always been writing, but I never really found a way to monetize that writing either directly or indirectly until um, collective campus. And so yep. as a small business, you may not have a ton of money to throw at ads, um, but you may have time um, to create content. Um, and that's something that really fueled our growth. So over the eight year period, we've been running collective campus. We published close to 500 
blog posts, uh, 429 podcast episodes, about 30 eBooks. Um, a lot of it's SEO optimized. And this just drove a lot of inbound traffic. So some months we'd be getting 200 downloads, inquiries, leads um, that we could follow up on. And, you know, essentially that was our source of, of business. Um, and th- we were doing this, you know, from like 2015 um, before, you know, content marketing was cool. And the beauty is nowadays, if you're a, a small business operator, like you can leverage AI, like it's not going to write the article for you 100%, but instead of spending an hour writing something, you might spend 15 to 20 minutes doing it. And so if you commit one, two hours a week, maybe to publishing a couple of articles on your niche, you do that for six months, perhaps you start to generate a lot of inbound organic traffic as well. So that's something worth mentioning. Um, But during that journey, once I started blogging for Collective Campus, I thought, well, Publishing on our own website is great, but perhaps I can bring in more traffic and build my brand and the brand of the company by publishing on third-party websites. Um, and so I thought, well, let's. where do we go? We're a corporate innovation consultancy, startup accelerator. Let's go straight to the top, you know, Harvard Business Review. And I contacted like three editors initially and they all turned me down. Like I had a, a post that I wrote for them. It was a draft. It was ready to go. And they all turned me down. And I guess I didn't take no for an answer. And I went to their head of staff, I think it was, or their chief editor or something of that persuasion. And he actually liked the angle. And the angle was around the case for the six-hour workday. Um, and that uh, pitch made its way um, to, to the right person. I got the green light to, to, to submit that article. And... That article, the case for the six-hour workday, actually um, blew up and went viral. It got picked up by the Wall Street Journal, Smart Company, European CEO, Indian Management, The Age, The Financial Review. Everyone wow. kind of picked it up. And that was kind of my arrival, if you will, as a somewhat uh, credible, legitimate writer. Um, <laughs> somewhat, I, I must stress. Um, but that did then pave the way for me to be able to get book deals with the likes of Wiley, my first book was Employee to Entrepreneur, which is essentially unpacking some of the lessons we're, we're talking about today, but in much greater detail. And subsequent to that, um, a book called Time Rich, which really took the, the case for the six-hour workday article I did for HBR and um, took it to its logical conclusion as a 70,000-word book. That's awesome. Uh, Steve, I'm, I'm curious, Like, and I, I've been on this journey myself as an entrepreneur now for, for you know, say, around four years. Um how did you find, what do you think that catalyst was for you to find confidence that your point of view um, was something that you could put forward and try to get published? So, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of ideas and it takes a lot of time to realize that actually you have a unique insight that you can contribute and commercialize as well. Mm. Um, what do you think it was for you that sort of gave you that confidence to say, look, I'm, I'm at a point now where I think I can share something that can add value? Because there are a lot of people that write lots of stuff across the internet, right? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think initially when I was writing, say, for Collective Campus, for a corporate audience who was interested in learning about innovation, it, you know, there's that whole maxim that if you and your friend are running away from a tiger, you only need to be faster than your friend to, to survive. Hopefully uh, you're, you're not... You're not too fond of this friend given that analogy but um it's the same kind of thing whereby i was reading the books at least 
you know, all of these innovation books, the innovators dilemma, the innovators DNA, the lean startup, uh, running lean. I had consumed all this knowledge. I'd listened to all the podcasts. I'd watched all the YouTube videos. And then it was about distilling that down, um, combining that with my experience in the corporate world and crafting content that was tailor-made for that audience. Um, and I knew that most people in that audience hadn't read these books, hadn't consumed this knowledge. So I was giving them that knowledge in a way that um, they could understand in a language that was familiar to them. And so that's how I started. That's where I got the confidence from. Uh, and then the more I wrote about disparate topics, the more I would start to then over time have my own sort of epiphanies and my own unique sort of takes on things. And I think that comes with just writing. Like there's a saying that clear writing is a sign of clear thinking. And sometimes you might think something, but then if you try and transfer those words onto a page and say it's a product idea or an article, and then you start trying to make an argument, writing it down kind of shows you that perhaps you haven't thought through all the ebbs and flows of this particular topic. And being able to do that, um, and forcing yourself to write about it rather is actually a really great way to work through ideas and, and make more sense of them and try and highlight perhaps some of the shortcomings that you may not have thought about as well. So so it sounds like a lot of um, reflection and introspection along the way as well. And and I think that that importance of, of learning from previous people who have been on a previous path to you. Yeah. Uh, it's where reading, I guess, is, is one of our greatest strengths is um, as humans, the ability to write and read and transfer knowledge. Absolutely. And um, I think sometimes we just self-censor ourselves. Like we will say, oh, who, who wants to hear from me? Or I'm not that good of a, a writer. Like, why should I start a podcast? No one's going to listen. But with that... Well, we get the same fear today. Hopefully there's more than one person listening to this. So, uh, But yeah, even well, if we just get one, that is the uh, the, the first part. Win. <laughs> that's a win. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um what what I would say though is reflecting on my earlier writing, there was definitely a sense of like naivety. And sometimes I'd read something in a book and be like, well, this is the gospel. And so whatever it says must must go. But then having consumed a lot more, having written a lot more, nowadays I'm way more like 10x more um <laughs> cynical, perhaps, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But when I read ideas, particularly pertaining to business, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But it's a particular context and a particular time for a particular type of product. There are so many nuances and perhaps this methodology might work for that business, but these other nine businesses that won't work for, and here's why, and luck plays a big factor. And yeah. Whereas yeah, initially well, I was like, this is the, you know, the, uh, the hammer that's, you know, for all of your nails, this is the one hammer you need and definitely have evolved from that over the years. I think the important part there is context is really important. Mm -hmm. um what works somewhere may not work elsewhere uh or what works at a certain point in time may not work now or later um or may not have worked before but it might work now um so uh i think that's a really important learning i think that natural curiosity it sounds like and that um uh almost think of it as like constructive criticism um or, or constructive skepticism is uh, is I think a healthy characteristic to have. But if we if we just shift gears a little bit and, and conscious that you know we don't have that much more time together, um, again just following your journey. So uh, started off from little things, small beginnings. Uh, 
had a failure from that failure, continued down the path, realized that entrepreneurship was still what you wanted to do. Found like your true passion that mapped back to something that was always, that was always part of your life, which was writing Mm -hmm. and helping small business owners succeeded and success can be, can be, uh, qualified or, or quantified in, in very in different ways but uh, if we just quantify it uh, for a moment your first million so uh bit of a personal question hopefully you don't mind sharing but um you know few of us get to make a million dollars um and it is still today despite inflation the cost of living is still a uh, milestone a lot of us hope to make a million dollars um can you share with us sort of how long it took what that was like and um how a lot of the, and clearly a lot of these learnings are built into that but uh at what stage along that journey were you like i'm on the right track i'm not crazy mm-hmm. uh which as a business owner as an entrepreneur you can sometimes feel a little bit alone or feel like you're going against the grain which you need to do to be successful um but yeah just share a little bit about us there absolutely and um i think i, I will uh caveat this by saying that you know luck and timing can also play a very big role in one's success. Um, But at the same time, you don't get lucky without doing the work and being visible and being prepared and all that sort of stuff. So with um, Collective Campus, in terms of revenue, um, we went from zero to uh, our first million in 15 months. Wow. And yeah. um, You were in the AFR fast starter list, right? Or was one of the- Yeah, so I think it was 2017. AFR 100 fast starters, so basically one of the 100 fastest growing new companies in Australia. Um, so zero to a million in 15 months. And that was driven by, you know, the accelerators that organically fell in our lap after working with these corporates on the consulting side of things. Um, and the accelerators were high ticket programs, you know, 12-week programs, training, coaching, et cetera, for these startups. And so we would charge six-figure tickets for those. Um, at the time, somewhere between 250 and 350K. And as I say, it was a bit of a perfect storm where around this time, there was big interest in accelerators. Australia didn't have too many local accelerators at the time, whereas now in 2023, there's like 20 times more, if not if not more than that. I might be underestimating and so we were perfectly positioned to take advantage of that. Um, and so sometimes that has to be in your favor, like timing, demand, supply um, in the market. Uh, and perhaps the other thing I would take out of that as well is not undervaluing yourself. Because I see a lot of small business owners and sole traders and whatnot, perhaps initially they're, you know, for lack of a better word, desperate to start making sales, start generating revenue. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure, right? The pressure in your life, your income, you may have a family. um, Exactly. Exactly. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying this is something that you shouldn't do, but there are consequences. And so you might start underpricing your services relative to everyone else in your industry. um, And that will bring money in but it will mean that you'll have to work twice, three times, four times as hard to generate X amount of dollars. Um, and those customers that get used to paying you know, X aren't suddenly going to start wanting to pay Y um, a year from now. And so you might lock yourself into 
charging a lot less than everyone else. It's a race to the bottom. And if you do that long enough, like you'll eventually just burn out and say it's not worth it and you'll quit and move on to something else. Yeah. So if it, you know, in a perfect world, you know, I would rather try and find the business where I can charge more, have less clients that are more manageable um, and have, you know, greater margins essentially and do this in a sustainable way. Um, so that's something that I've always taken with me with business. And, you know, recently, uh, you know, several months ago, I set up another business, which is focused in the content space. And there again, you know, I set up retainers that, you know, they're not cheap, but I base that on the value that we provide, whereby if we have three or four clients, that's enough to keep the lights on, um, keep profit coming in and, you know, for me, live the life that I want to live um, as opposed to having to constantly sell and have, you know, 40 or 50 clients on my books that I'm trying to retain on an ongoing basis. Now, of course, every business is different, but before you even step into business, you want to think about things like that. You know, the business model, is this sustainable? Is this going to be a race to the bottom? Um, how can I make this easier on myself to get to that target revenue, which might be, you know, 100k 200k a year whatever it is for for the individual in question um yeah. but yeah yeah i think that's a really important point is that it doesn't business doesn't need to be about making a million dollars a year no it, absolutely it should not. be a balance between your your objectives and and what you need to to feel fulfilled and, and achieve your purpose and um a lot of the businesses we speak to we've spoken to thousands of business owners now in our journey in building papera and um uh, there are some common themes that come through as to why people get into business. It, it's usually um, uh, they want freedom uh, to pursue what they love, so passion. Um, there, are, there is fin financial motivations, but it's actually mo more lean towards I want to do what I love as opposed to I, I want to make lots of money. I think um, to to borrow another entrepreneur, what they said to me was, you know, entrepreneurship. Actually, if you want to make money, there are many better ways to make money for lower risk than uh, pursuing entrepreneurship. Yeah, Although the returns can be great if you succeed. Um, the risk yeah. that you take is, is significant as well. So it's not to be underestimated. But I think, um, uh, and, and maybe a nice topic to to start to wrap up our conversation on is um, how has life changed for you as a result of the journey you've been on? Because if we think back to what you were saying before, you know, late 20s, early 30s, you're transitioning to entrepreneurship, you had this corporate lifestyle, you'd make up for what you didn't get out of life through working in, on a weekend, through other activities. Um, has that led to maybe a more balanced um uh, experience for you and, and the freedom that's come with the journey as well, despite all the challenges you've been through and, and the and the pain and suffering and the resilience to succeed. Um, what that what's that mean for you today? Yeah, ultimately it means freedom, uh, freedom to do what I want when I want. Essentially, um, of course, that is within sort of certain bounds. For example, I have clients that I need to you know serve and keep happy and things of that sort. But it's about having open dialogue from day one, setting boundaries um, with with clients around things like communication when you're available, when you're not, as opposed to creating these environments where you're on call 24 seven, um, especially if you have clients who perhaps are very needy. And that's something that you, again, have the choice to decide. Of course, in the early days, you want to do whatever you can to just have money coming in. So I understand it's not um, freedom or liberty that every early stage small business owner has, but at some point you want to be able to select your clients and work with people that you want to work with who don't necessarily impede upon the life that you want to build. Um, so for me, it's been freedom and, you know, reflecting on that whole living for the weekend philosophy, of course, part of that is perhaps 
getting older, mellowing out, maturing, I hope. Um, but early into the journey with Hot Desk and, and later Collective Campus, I found that need to kind of live for the weekend subsided big time um, because I was enjoying the week. I was enjoying the work. I was enjoying the creative process, the learning, the growth, the people I was working with. And so I didn't really feel the need to write myself off on a Friday Friday night. Um, and that's persisted to to this very day. And That's awesome. Yeah. And I think just, just freedom and just work-life integration more than anything. And, you know, before this podcast, I did send you a short video. Um, you know, I'm living down Torquay now on the surf coast in Victoria. And so I prepped myself for this podcast by driving down to the beach and jumping into a cold water cave for, for about five minutes and just being able to do things like that um, and in integrating stuff like that into my workday makes, you know, a world of difference in terms of, um, yeah, just my experience of life. That's awesome. And um, yeah, look, again, congratulations on the journey. Um, I think uh, hopefully there are a lot of people that are listening today that have got a lot of value out of this. But again, key themes are it's around uh, taking that leap, uh, taking calculated risk, um, not being scared to fail necessarily, but being willing to learn from failures or challenges along the way. I think failure is like a word that gets... Um, used a little bit too much like a failure is kind of like a it's like a finite term it implies that there's nothing after it but the reality is as long as you're alive and still going like it's it's quite infinite you haven't failed until you give up as you say or or you die absolutely um and so um i'll discontinue doing what you're doing but um i guess two more questions and then we'll wrap it up um the first one is um uh you know, if I was starting a business today or just started business and maybe if you were starting today, like where's the world going? I mean, we've spoken about AI very briefly. Um, my view is that starting a business today requires a very different perspective to even a year or two ago before the prevalence of all these AI tools. If you if you want to sort of set yourself up in an efficient way, you can do more with a lot less. Mm. Um, but I'm just keen to hear your view on where's the world going? And then... Um, and to give you some context as to how I'd love to wrap up is sort of what are the three things that people could take away today to either um, make it easier to get started or to uh, to overcome the challenges they're facing in, in achieving what their passion is uh, through doing business? Okay, so in answer to the first question, and of course, I'm not a prophet. I don't purport to... But a very well-read man, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, what we're seeing, and this is a trend that's been... I suppose, unfolding over the past 20 plus years where the costs, the costs of starting a business or the barriers to entry for starting a business have progressively gotten lower and lower with the advent of the internet, cloud computing, mobile, you name it. And, and that's like taken a 10x sort of step forward with AI now. And so what may have required a team of 20 people, you know, servers in a data center somewhere, basically 500,000 to a million dollars up front to start a business in the mid nineties, depending on the nature of the business nowadays can be one person with a hundred bucks on their credit card. And yeah. so that's exciting. And I feel like where the world is going is a lot of companies that perhaps even two years ago might've needed venture capital, even if it was 500 K to a million dollars to, to get started in a seed round. Nowadays, with the advent of AI, um, you know, automation and 
easy access to offshore talent may not need venture capital. And so I think there may be an explosion of, shall we call them lifestyle businesses, where it might be one person, maybe two people, bootstrapped, self-funded, building these businesses on the back of you know, AI and APIs and automation tools and offshore talent and generating perhaps a million dollars, five, 10, who knows? Like it's only limited by your imagination and how hard you work and how well you focus. And they may not require VC money. And so I think there'll be a massive market for, let's just call them indie hackers. Yeah. Well, what about, what about, I mean, you spoke of VC funding, but what about just like, the everyday person, like there are 26 yeah. million of us in Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got this uh, in the next five to 10 years, uh, millennials and Gen Z are going to be 65% of our working population here. I mean, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sitting in my career right now. I may have not even started my career. Yet. Um, you know, what, what would you do like to get started? Well, I guess these may be your three takeaways. <laughs> so just before, before I answer that, um, when I wrote Time Rich, I was running all these workshops in the lead up to it. And I would run workshops with small business owners and I'd show them this chart with like $10 an hour tasks. And that was something like really rudimentary, like, you know, invoicing and things of that sort, all the way up to $100 an hour tasks or $1,000 an hour tasks, like strategy and, and things of that sort, or selling, for example. And when I asked them what percentage of their time do they spend on these $10 an hour tasks, it was always 50% plus. And so one, that's a waste of time because you're not spending that time on high value activities where you can create the most value and income. But two, it's demoralizing. It would eat up a lot of time. It would make people not want to do what they were doing and go back to you know, a cushy corporate job because, oh man, all these admin. Yeah. And so now with AI, with automation, with APIs, you can set up a business whereby those $10 an hour tasks aren't things that you do anymore. Either you outsource them to, to someone offshore or you automate them. And so that's a great opportunity for small business owners. If you're a small business owner or a sole trader, even there's no doubt all this stuff on your plate that you could progressively get rid of. Um, yeah, that's why we created Papera. I mean, to not to plug the business, but um, to automate your financial admin. Uh, and you know, that's why we need tools that are, that progressively people have access to now that can make it a lot easier. Because as you say, it just allows you to focus more on high value stuff. But more importantly, for most people we speak to, it's the stuff they love. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, people might get overwhelmed thinking about all this stuff they need to uh, potentially outsource. And but one thing a day, maybe make a list of all your sort of administrative tasks or the stuff you don't like doing. And then one a day, go through that list once a day, just pick one item and just Google solutions like AI solutions, automation solutions, or maybe just offshore it using, you know, Upwork or freelancer.com. Just doing that once a day over a period of say a month, you will find yourself with so much more time to invest either back into the business or just invest back into just life. Maybe go to the beach for a swim. Go to the beach for a swim. (laughs) Spend more time with your kids. Do a podcast with Dan. Yeah. Do a podcast (laughs) with Dan, whatever it is. Go to the gym. And so that's one thing that I would recommend people do. Um, And then in terms of, you know, if I was starting today. Even if you're on the journey and just like, Yep. you know, need to make a step change. Like it's, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, like what are your, what are your three tips for success? Shall we say? Yeah. What one is definitely niching down, like niche down. Don't just stop at Like if I am 
thinking of being like a, I don't know, a Shopify store for sporting goods. That's pretty generic. Like it's pretty generic. Um, and I'm going to be competing with a lot of sporting good retailers. It's a race to the bottom. But maybe I want to be a Shopify store for Australian badminton players, right? Something like way more niche. Yeah. But then all of my marketing uh, is going to be focused on badminton. And I'll know where to find these people. I could create relationships with like the Australian Badminton Association, for example. I could go to badminton competitions, start handing out flyers and things of that sort. And over time, that will create network effects and people will know this brand and these badminton players will go to this website. But if I'm just going to be really generic and broad with my brand, it's so much harder to do all those things. The marketing, it's hard to speak to everyone at the same time with the same language. It's hard to build network effects and things of that sort. So niche down as much as you can in an area that uh, you know you connect with, in an area that you think is compelling enough to go after as a business. That would be definitely one. So it's a niche slash focus? Yeah, absolutely. And the focus, it kind of, yeah, absolutely. Because if you don't niche, you'll end up spreading yourself thin. Yeah. and going after so many different segments and maybe you'll start building multiple different solutions to kind of uh, supplement the lack of income that you have and that's fine but it's not sustainable long term it's very hard to do that um, sometimes it's it pays to be uncomfortable in the short term if you can if you can last a few months to just build that traction in one niche focus area and then it will get easier with time so that would be one. Uh, number two, like pricing, like where you can reflect on your prices and see if you can charge more for a better quality service and product, offer guarantees, 30-day guarantees. You use us. You, if you don't like it, you don't pay anything. Like be confident that you are the best solution for the for the um, problem. Um, offer bonuses, do all sorts of stuff to just differentiate yourself from everyone else. If you can, depending on your industry, uh, lead with value rather than lead with selling. Like I'm a big believer of show, don't tell. So at the moment, uh, you know, I'm building a content agency and one thing that we do instead of just trying to sell people is we'll look up their existing content, we'll take their content, we'll repurpose it into a bunch of different types of content. And so when we reach out, we're like, hey, here's what we do. Here's some work we've already prepared for you just to showcase what kind of work we do. Um, and that is more likely to kind of raise eyebrows and trigger those aha moments and make them want to have a conversation than just another sort of LinkedIn sales message, which nine times out of 10, we get those, we just delete them after reading the first three words. Um, so that would be um, the second thing. Price, so niche down, price. And number three, I think we alluded to it earlier in the chat, but just persistence. It's, you know, Calvin Coolidge, former US president, uh, once said that nothing in this world will take the place of persistence. Education will not, talent will not, genius will not. Persistence alone is omnipotent. And if you persist, let me rephrase that. You're much more likely to succeed uh, if you persist, then if you quit and change course every three months when things just aren't working. So give yourself a long enough lead time, a realistic enough lead time um, to get to success. And as I said earlier, we underestimate what we can do in, say, a month. Um, 
we overestimate rather what we can do in a month and underestimate what we can do in 12 months. So give yourself a realistic sort of time frame. But at the same time, you want to have some form of leading indicator along the way. Um, so for example, it could be people agreeing to have meetings with you, um, people visiting your website, people clicking on your ads. Like those are leading indicators that give you some sense of confidence that you are on the right track. And if you have a wide enough funnel of leading indicators pointing in the right direction, then eventually at the bottom of that funnel, you'll have dollars coming out the other side. So niche, persistence, price. It takes time. It takes time. But um, Steve, on that note, thanks so much for your time today. Um, to recap, you've been on an amazing journey uh, from little things, getting taken that first leap into entrepreneurship, experiencing your first failures, repurposing those learnings to focus on and doubling down on what you're passionate about, working out how to monetize. So your, your whole thing about pricing and ultimately your persistence to build now what is a strong foundation that allows you to live the life you want to live. And I think that's the powerful part about, about business is that as an individual, you can end up being someone that can help others and add a lot of value. And, and yes, part of the part of that's getting yourself to a position where you then have the ability to do that. But then even though you've got yourself there, you still continue to invest in, and uh, and look to help others as well. So I think it's been awesome to see your journey over the last 10 years. And hopefully our listeners today for our first episode have got some valuable key takeaways as well. Thanks a lot for your time and uh, looking forward to our next episode soon. Thank you, Dan, for having me. And I have to say, as someone who has published about 600 podcast episodes over the years, for a first episode, that was a fantastic job. Like you were present, curious, asking follow-up questions, summarizing takeaways. That was very well done and a hell of a lot better than my episode one um, back in 2016. So well, well done. the notes, but thank you. <laughs> I look forward to uh, hearing your subsequent episodes, man. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Steve. Have a great day. From Little Things is brought to you by Papera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free at papera.com. From Little Things is part of the Sonic Boom network of podcasts. To get your brand started on its own podcast, visit sonicboom.vc.